The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Into the lesson tonight, which is from the 23rd Psalm. The psalm was read to you, and it is already familiar to all of you. Probably all of you could repeat the psalm. Now, it is, is renowned. It's a wonderful poem. The Hebrew poem written in the Hebrew language, and Hebrew poetry is very beautiful and men who can read the Hebrew language tell me that it's difficult to put all the beauty that's in a Hebrew poem in the English language. This, however, has been celebrated for many centuries. People have loved it, committed it to memory. Mothers have taught it to their children at their knees. It's been printed upon placards and hung upon the walls of our homes. It's been loved and respected as a tender appeal to the human heart. And if we had no other reason to study it, we should, from the very fact that it is so celebrated, begin to try to see what the secret is. For whenever we find that any passage of of Scripture has found a response in the universal human heart, we must know that there's something in there that appeals to man, something that touches the heart. And if we haven't seen it, it must be our own fault. For generation after generation has seen it and has loved it. So we would need to look at the psalm to see why it is that it is loved and celebrated in the way that it is. And yet it wouldn't be hard to see what the meaning of the psalm is if we give attention to it. I committed this psalm to memory when I was a child, like most children do, taught by their parents. And yet, I was a grown man and a preacher of the gospel before I knew what it meant. I don't profess yet to know all that it means, or to understand, as Brother Pittman said, just where the greatest emphasis should be put, but I know that I do see in it now things that I didn't see then, and I'm happy to bring to you the benefits of the study that I've given to it and the reading that I have done about the psalm from men who have studied it and analyzed it and written about it. Henry Ward Beecher said it is the nightingale of the song, the sweetest singer of all. David, no doubt, was the author of this song. And we'll see when we come to study it why it is then that he portrayed this in the language of a shepherd. He is talking about God's care for us based upon the care that a shepherd gives to his flock, the care that he gives to his sheep, and the solicitude that he has about them and their well-being. It's illustrated then by that relationship of a shepherd and the sheep. The whole meaning of it is in the first line, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why shall I not want? Because the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, being being my shepherd, will look after my wants and my needs. He'll supply them all, and therefore I shall not want. I shall not want for the good things of life because he makes me to lie down in the green pastures and leads me beside the still waters. I shall not want for the forgiveness of sin because he restores my soul. I shall not want for guidance, for he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
I shall not want even when I come to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for he'll be with me there. His rod and his staff will comfort me. I shall not want for vindication over my enemies, for he prepares a table for me in the presence of them. He anoints my head with oil. Therefore, he supplies my needs and gives me comfort and also honor. And my cup runneth over. Then seeing that God will supply all these blessings, David then looks into the future and even draws the curtain of time aside and looks into eternity. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. Then you can see that it's all in that one sentence. He is my shepherd, I shall not want. Not want for what? Any good thing. It'll all be supplied to me because God is my shepherd, the Lord leads me. Now, in order that we may see the meaning of all these things, we'd have to know something about the shepherd's life and the relationship that the shepherd sustained to his flock. We shall not tonight attempt to go through all the shepherd scene because I'm not sure that I know what is implied in that preparing a table before me and anointing my head with oil. That is, I know that it means vindication and honor. But what scene that refers to in a shepherd's life, I'm not sure. But it's very clear that we have the scenes in the first four divisions here. And these four, four scenes in a shepherd's life will be portrayed to you in this sermon tonight. Now we know that the sheep is used to represent the people of God. That was true in the Old Testament scripture over and over again. And God himself was looked upon as their shepherd. Then we come into the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Good Shepherd. And he said, My sheep know my voice and a stranger they will not follow. And he also says that he knows them by name. And he then rep is represented even after he's gone to heaven. He's represented as the chief shepherd. There Peter refers to him as the chief shepherd. And he calls him the chief shepherd because he speaks of the elders of the church as subordinate shepherds. Shepherds taking care of the flock here upon earth. And then when the chief shepherd shall appear, we, he, they'll have to give an account to him. He's the shepherd and the bishop of our soul. He's the chief shepherd. Not only that, is he represented as our shepherd and we are represented as sheep. But he himself is represented as a lamb, a lamb of God. And this time, the picture is the lamb that was offered in sacrifice for the sins of men. So that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain that we might live. And then in the book of Revelation, in that marvelous scene that's given there, when John was permitted to come up higher and to see things that were shortly to come to pass, he saw the lamb as, though, as it had been slain. And then... He pictures throughout that book, the Lamb, and the Lamb was worthy to take the book and break the seals thereof. And then all the creatures of heaven fell down and worshipped the Lamb, and sang that he was worthy to take the book and break the seals because he had purchased with his blood out of every tongue and tribe and people of nation of earth, men to be kings and priests and to reign on the earth. Hence the Lord Jesus Christ is a Lamb, the Lamb of God. We are his sheep, the sheep of his flock. Now, why is it then that this figure of speech obtains in the scriptures? Well, you may say, sheep raising was the chief industry of the time. Very true it was, and particularly these men of God that we know. Abel was a keeper of flocks in the early morning of time. 
And then we know that David was a shepherd and he stayed out in the fields and the hills watching by the flock. And he was not even present when Samuel came to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king. And Samuel had to inquire for him after the other sons had been rejected. And David came in fresh from the field to be anointed the king of Israel. Joseph and his, uh, Isaac and Jacob and Abraham were all shepherds. And Joseph was sent to see about his brothers who had been watching with their flocks by day and by night for a long time. He went to see about them and followed on down till he found them and then he was so rudely treated and sold into slavery. Well, thus that indicates the type of life that they lived. They were shepherds. And you say then that's the reason this figure of speech is used. Well, it is, of course. And that's the reason David could write so eloquently about the shepherd because he's been a shepherd. And we should see about those things. But there's something else that we should consider. Why would a sheep represent the children of God? Why would they always speak of God's children as sheep and as lambs? Lambs in his bosom born, as our song says. Why? Well, is that true? Well, here is the thought if you think for a moment. There must be some characteristic of a sheep that makes it appropriate to use that figure of speech. There must be something about that animal that represents the attitude of God's people toward God and God's attitude toward them as a shepherd over them. Now, you know, it would not be appropriate to call God's children lions or tigers or bears or wolves or even dogs. Then, why would it not be appropriate to call the children of God a tiger? Or a leopard. Well, we all know that there's some characteristics of those animals that would not represent any disposition that ought to be in the children of God. And therefore, we couldn't speak of them as beasts of prey. We couldn't speak of them as beasts that prowl the forest and are dangerous to all other living things. No. Then there must be something appropriate in the sheep to make that a figure of speech used. And what is it? Why, it is the helplessness of the sheep. We want to get that, the helplessness of the sheep. The sheep doesn't have the fleetness of the reindeer to run from danger and get out of the way. It doesn't have the fangs of the tiger or the lion or even the wolf. He does not then have any means of protection and is not, therefore, able to protect himself from danger. And they tell me that when the flock of sheep attack the wolves or cowboys or dogs, that they run together and huddle together in a flock and stand trembling until they're torn and murdered by these beasts. So, they then are a helpless, defenseless type of animal. And since they were helpless and defenseless, the shepherd watched by them. He protected them. He stayed with them both by day and by night. And to defend them, not only from the wild beasts, but from robbers also. So, the shepherds then were accustomed to sleep in the great out of doors and to be with the sheep by day and by night. And then, later on, as we see from the figure of speech that the Lord Jesus Christ used, these shepherds learned something about teamwork. They learned something about organizing and helping each other in the work. And therefore, instead of one shepherd having to be alone in the field watching his sheep, and a little distance away, another shepherd alone with his flock, they then built a sheepfold into which they could bring their flocks at night. And that sheepfold was a large stone enclosure with one gate, one door open, no cover above it, nothing but the sky. And robbers and thieves might climb over, but they'd not be able to get sheep out. And they had a doorkeeper then to stay at the door and watch by night. Then, as all the flocks of all the various shepherds had been brought at evening into the sheepfold, 
all of them turned in that again. Then the next morning when they came to lead them away to pasture, how would they be able to separate them? Oh, that was easy. That was easy because of the nature of the sheep. Again, and that gives rise to the figure that the Lord uses. My sheep hear my voice and a stranger they will not follow. That then came from that very custom. Then next morning when the sheep were to be brought out through that one door to go to the pasture, one shepherd would take his stand out here, another shepherd out here, another little further down the hill, somebody out in this direction, and then as the sheep came pouring out of that door, each shepherd would utter his call. The sheep separated themselves automatically and every sheep went trotting right to his master, for he knew the call. And as the shepherd stood there and called for the sheep, kept coming to them, he'd see them and number them and name them, and then he'd start on with his peculiar call down the path and over the hill and down the valley, leading his sheep away to pasture. So he might be out through the entire day, but when night all comes again, he leads the sheep in and the others are coming from every direction and thus the sheep are placed in the fold, and that gives rise to the statement about our Lord being the door to the sheepfold and also being the good shepherd and the sheep hearing his voice and a stranger they would not follow. So we can see then the appropriateness of that figure. Why the, and also we can see why it is that the sheep represent children of God. And then if you can see our defenselessness, our helplessness, and know that God knows that we're defenseless and helpless, against the tragedies of time, against death and the grave, and against eternity. All then, when we have a shepherd whose mercy underlies all the forces of life and of death, whose everlasting arms are beneath us and whose continuous care is over us, we can rejoice and say that we have no want for anything either in time or in eternity because we have such a perfect shepherd that can take such perfect care of us through both time and eternity. And then we can begin to see how that David, who wrote this psalm, as although probably he's now become the king of Israel and reigned upon the throne of Israel and commanded the armies of Israel, still, as he rose and worshipped God and rose to pray in the night to God, he must have remembered his days when he was out in the fields alone with God. And I believe that that's the reason David knew so much about God. It is because that he'd been out in the wide open spaces. He'd been alone with no human companions with him as he watched by his sheep both by day and by night, leading him in pastures during the day, watching over them and sleeping near them at the night, out in the night time. And I think that that gives rise to the beauty of all of David's psalms. And in the 19th psalm, he said, The heavens declare the glory of God in the firmament, showeth his handiwork. Day unto day unto speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. I think that David had in view then the scenes that he had witnessed when he is out both by day and by night. And I can see David as he looked away toward the west and looked upon the sunset. We here on this side and we can see David and his flock there upon top of the hill, silhouetted before us, and David leaning upon his shepherd's staff, looking out toward the west as the sun was setting and shooting his shafts of glory to the zenith, as was floating in cloud islands of ruby and amethyst. And he said, Then the heavens declare the glory of God. Day unto day uttered speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. For he uttered speech when he could see the glory and the beauty of the daytime. And then the night, when he'd been out in the night and looked at the stars and all the glory of the heavens, 
he taught them the power of God. And there is another psalm that evidently must have been a night scene because it doesn't mention the sun. He mentions the moon and the stars. And that's the eighth psalm. And I can think that David was out at night. Perhaps he was here, his sheep now all safely around him and lying asleep. David lying probably prone upon the earth, looking out up through the thin ether of the quivering heavens to the stars as they hung like pendant gems in the liquid turquoise of the sky. The beautiful moon, as it came up and was reflected in the still water that was there beside his flock. And he said, when I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast created, what is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him, so small, so far away, down of lying upon the grasses of the night, looking to the glory of the heavens, the works of God's hand. And after he thought of this beauty and wondered why the God that created such things would be mindful of him, then he broke forth in a note of exultation which must have been given by inspiration. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast just made him a little lower than the angels. Thou hast set him over all the works of thy hand. And he continued to sing of the position in which God had placed man. And yet it was a marvel to him that the God, the infinite God, who could garnish the heavens and create the earth, would be mindful of man. But God is mindful of man, and he's concerned for man's welfare. And David knew that, and that's what he can sing about the shepherd, and the shepherd caring for his sheep. So we see here, then, at least four scenes in this uh, first part of this song that is in a shepherd's life. We can see what he does, and he uses that same expression to indicate what God does for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, now, what was it that the sheep would want for if they hadn't had a shepherd? And then he thinks of what the shepherd's done. He said, Thou makest me to lie down in green pastures, thou leadest me beside the still waters. Well, that's exactly what a shepherd did in his literal sense. He, we can see the shepherd then as he's out with his flock. And as the days are hot and the grass is burnt and the ground is, and the ground is bare, then that shepherd seeks for places where they can find green grass. He seeks for places where they can have water. And he travels probably down the brook to the creek and part of it dry until finally he comes to a deep eddy, a deep, quiet, cool place. There the water is still. There the shade of the tree falls upon the shore and the grass grows green and tender. When he's found that place, he leads the sheep to it. And they can drink the water and lie up on the cool green grass as well as to feed upon it. And as they lie there, quiet and safe and at rest from all the heat and all, the, as all their needs supply. Then when he thought of finding such places for his sheep, when grass was scarce and when water was gone, he thought then, even in time of famine, the Lord will care for me. Whatever may be my need, the Lord will supply. Not only that, he'll give me the good things of life. And that's the thing that I want to emphasize upon that thing. There's the thing. There's the practice of the shepherd and there's the point that he makes. God will supply us good things. And we see then, illustrated for this, people sometimes think that religion requires you to leave off all the blessings of life and all the pleasures of life and to have a long, sanctimonious faith. 
and to go about with sad countenance. No, the Lord gives good things to his children. And yet, people do not understand that that's where the good things are. For if they did, they'd be following the Lord and trusting the Lord and feeling dependent upon him for the blessings, for he would supply them. We know that people today are tempted to want to have pleasures and they're seeking for a good time. And therefore, sometimes they'll express it, I want to live while I live, for I don't know how long we'll be in this life. And therefore, we must eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we might die. Oh, yes. But they do not think that they will get the pleasure. They do think that they'll get the pleasure in eating and drinking, and therefore in indulging their passions and dissipating their strength. But my friends, that's not the way to happen. Happiness doesn't come that way. Happiness comes from God, and those that serve God have the good time. People today are seeking for a good time, and not only that, they're seeking for treasures that will perish. And they're always uh, deluded by the mirage on the desert of life. They're always trying to go to the end of the rainbow, the rainbow for the fabled bag of gold. They never find it. And young people are taught that they're young, and while they're young, they must have a good time. Well, surely, they should have a good time, but they must not be taught that the good time lies down the road of evil, or that it lies in indulging the flesh. No, no, the passions of the flesh indulged will become inflamed and abnormal, and will be impossible even to give them satisfaction, and consequently people become perverted and distorted and ruined before their years are gone, by trying to seek a good time in that way. If you read the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, you find the Apostle Paul enumerating both the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. And Mark, you write on the works of the flesh, there he enumerates the very things that people think will have a good time. There's fornication and adultery and drunkenness. There are all these sins that people think they must commit in order to be happy and to be free. And yet these things will dissipate their strength and enslave them and will corrupt their minds and damn their souls. On the other side, the side of the Spirit has love, joy, and peace. Oh yes, joy, not mere happiness, but joy, something that's deep, deep and abiding and eternal. There's peace and there's love. On the other side, there's everything that's opposite of peace, everything that's the opposite of love, everything that's the opposite of joy. And yet there may be a sensation of pleasure, a momentary gratification, but all is vain. The good time, then, lies in serving God, because God leads you down to the pasture where the pastures are green and makes you lie down to the still water. Yes, he provides for you the blessings of life that will give you comfort and happiness, joy and peace. I'll illustrate that point, and we'll not have time to preach a sermon upon all these themes, but describe them. But this we must de deliver to you. This message of good time lies down the service of God. And I'll illustrate it by telling this story. Long ago, there was a teacher and one of his students walking out in the countryside. They had been out looking at the streams and the trees and the grasses and the various plants, enjoying nature. They were coming homeward as was late in the evening. And then they saw sitting in the, by the fence in the corner of the fence, in the days when the fences had corners, a huge pair of shoes. It was very evident that those shoes belonged to a man who was working over in that field. And this boy, full of pranks and full of life, wanted to have some fun. And he said to the teacher, let's have some fun. Let's hide that old fellow's shoes, that old farmer's shoes, and then hide ourselves here and watch him when he comes out and hear him curse. So... 
The teacher was a wise man. He said, now, I believe in having fun, and it's natural for boys to want to have fun, and I think we'll just have some fun. But now let's learn this lesson. Let's always pay for our own fun. Let's not make the other man pay for it. He's been toiling hard all day. He'll probably have cares and responsibilities and chores at home, and we would delay him and upset him if we hide his shoes. Now I tell you what let's do. You put a dollar in one of those shoes, and I'll put a dollar in the other shoe, and let's hide out here and wait till he comes out and watch him find those dollars and see his surprise, and hear what he says then. Well, the boy said, all right, we'll do that. They did then put the dollars in the shoe. They hid away in a clump of bushes and trees, and they didn't have to wait long. They saw the man coming up the furrow of the field, walking barefoot in the dirt of the, of the furrow, and he had his hoe up on his shoulder. His face wore the face of, wore the look of care. He is bowed and burdened not only for the toil of the day, but for the burdens of life. To look upon him was to sympathize with him, tired and weary and burdened. He came at last and climbed to the top of the fence and sat wearily there for a moment and breathed. Then he slid down to take up his shoes to put them on. When he started to put on the first shoe, he found the dollar. He looked up in great surprise and took the dollar out and looked at it and looked all around and called if anybody was there. And who had done this? No one asked him. Then he looked at the other shoe and he found another dollar. And he took that out and he held the two, seeming not know what to do with it. And he called again. He looked around and called and searched to see if he could find anybody. No response came. Nobody answered him. Then he laid the dollars down carefully on the ground and put on his shoe. And then he looked about again and called. He took up the dollars and stood up. Finally, he seemed resigned to accept it. He dropped them in his pocket. And then that boy and that teacher saw a scene that moved their hearts. He bowed down on his knees. He thanked God for those two dollars that had been given to him by some kind, unknown hand. And in that prayer, he told God that he had been calling upon him for help. And now, Lord, you've answered my prayer. And he thanked him. And in telling God about his answering his prayer, he spoke of his wife at home who was ill and in need of medicine. He spoke of his little children who didn't have the bread that they ought to have. And he had believed in God and called for bread and for help. And he thanked God that he'd answered his prayer and had given me two dollars, which will supply my needs. That boy and that teacher couldn't contain themselves any longer. They came out of their hiding and they walked up and shook hands with the man. They said, we put those dollars in your shoes. We did it for a joke, but you're welcome to them, and if you need more, we'll give you more. And that boy then knew a joy that he didn't know any prank could ever bring to him. He walked off on air as he went home. He felt light. He felt good. He'd done good to somebody. He'd relieved the suffering heart. Oh, yeah. When you serve God and when you help your fellow men, you have respect of yourself. You respect your own self, and you enjoy living. Oh, yes. God uses men, and in using men to bless others, he blesses them and enriches them. Oh, God gives us the good things of this life. He leads us down where the waters are still and makes us lie down on the pastures that are green.